Today is the third uh, Sunday of Advent, and we're continuing. Kenlin, can you turn me down just a smidge? I'm scared that I'm going to get loud in a minute, and it'll be too loud. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, and we're continuing our series through Advent psalms, psalms, prayers that the church has been praying during this season for centuries. And the reason we're doing this is like uh, Wilson said in the first sermon in this series, on the first Sunday of Advent, he really cleverly said, in most years you get to Advent around the end of November, beginning of December, but this year Advent caught up to us because we've been here (laughs) all year long. And so the reason that we as a church are using these as the focus of our sermon is that I think this particular Adventish way of praying is a way of praying that is particularly relevant to so many of us in our personal lives and definitely relevant to us as a church at this moment. So turn in your Bibles to our psalm for this morning, Psalm 126. We read it just a few minutes ago. And what I want to do this morning is, it's kind of interesting with the psalms. The psalms are both prayers that you can read to learn things, but they're also prayers that you should pray So you can both look at the Psalms to learn things about God, about prayer, about God's world. But that's not all you should do with the Psalms. You should also get out of that mode entirely and learn to just pray them. Learn to pour your own heart and mind and imagination into them and and pray them so much that they become your very native prayers. Remember, when Jonah was in the belly of the well of the well, the prayer that came out of him, every line of it was from the Psalms. So he had prayed all the Psalms so much that when he needed to pray extemporaneously, the words that filled his mind were words he had learned by heart until they had become a part of his heart, until they became his native words. When Jesus was on the cross, in the most extreme experience a human can experience, right? Nailed to wood, beaten. The words that came out of him were words he had memorized from the Psalms. You can memorize words until they become the best words for a moment. That's what we call a cuss word. Right? It's a word you've memorized that in some moments becomes the best word. Unless you're in the Miller household, I've heard. Psalm 126, what I'm going to do with you this morning is, uh, I normally preach personally, but I'm going to try to even be more personal this morning. I'm going to share with you how I've prayed it this past week as I've been um, preparing for this this morning. Okay, so this prayer, Psalm 126, like the prayer we looked at last week, has three phases, all right? In the first phase, it comes up in the first three verses. In the first phase of this prayer, we celebrate God's restoration of our fortunes in the past. Verses 1 to 3, we celebrate 
God's restoration of our fortunes in the past. So as I've been praying this all week, here's what I've done. I've celebrated to God over and over this week two particular experiences that I've had with God recently where God restored my fortunes. Most of you know these stories, the story of how my mother went into the hospital with the coronavirus on March the 24th. And then two days later, on March the 26th, my dad and my siblings and I and some of my children, some of my siblings' children, we were able to FaceTime with mom. As the doctors were in the room, they were waiting on us to give her an anesthesia to then vent her. And we all told her to have a good sleep. And 24 days later, when she woke up, she saw Jesus face to face. It was in the middle of the night and my phone rang. And I was the person who was contact for the hospital. And they told me the news that she had died alone. We weren't able to have the funeral until the end of June. And that night, and we, so June 28th, we have my mom's funeral. And the night after the funeral, my wife begins to succumb to the coronavirus. The next day, I succumbed. The next day, Sloan came down. My brother, my sister, and others of our nieces and nephews. They all began to recover, but I didn't. And a week later, on July the 6th, I went into the hospital. And four days after that, I was moved to the ICU. And for several days, I was facing the possibility of death. But as Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Philippians through your prayers, and the help of the Holy Spirit, I was delivered And in the words of the psalmist here, the Lord restored my fortunes. And on July the 21st, I came home from the hospital. And over the next couple of months, I was able to sit on my porch with my handy-dandy oxygen tube and bask in the euphoric joy that God had restored my fortunes. And, And a number of you in this room came and sat on the porch with me. And there were these moments sitting there where it was just like Psalm 126, verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. There were moments I was sitting there, and I promise you, the tree in my front yard looked like Thomas Kincaid had painted it with that little glow. It was like that. It was like those who dream. And this next part was absolutely. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. Look, I've got all these friends in Harrisonburg who are not Christians. And they came by and talked to me. And they knew something had happened. And we talked about it. They said among the nations. And we were glad. It was dreamlike. It was such a sharp reversal from the harsh reality we had been going through. The other time I experienced the first couple of verses of Psalm 126 was just two weeks ago with our capital campaign. Now, some of you are kind of excited about what happened, but I promise if you had been getting ready for it and looking at the possibilities we were facing, you would have experienced joy at a whole nother level. After years of looking for a new church home, a building large enough to make room for our growing congregation, God clearly led us to 75 North Mason Street. 
And in God's clear leading on July the 17th of 2019, we bought that building. And then on November the 21st, we did something we never would have done if we had known what was going to happen a few months later. We sold this building. And we trapped ourselves. We trapped ourselves into this building is now owned by another church. Come January, everything's fine. We've sold our building. We're getting ready to have a capital campaign. Our church is busting at the seams. Everything is good. February, it starts getting weird. In March, we stopped meeting for the last time as a church family. Now, we've sold this building, and we're going to be paying rent on it until the summer. And then in the summer, Carter Bank moved out of the building we had bought from them, stopped paying us rent, which stopped covering the rent for this building. Now, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Our church has not met together since March. We don't even really know how many people are in our church anymore. We've given away 80 people from our church to go to these other churches. Our tithes and offerings are up and down And we've got a $3 million building project. And we've got to get there fast because the longer we stay here, we're paying rent here, we're paying rent there. Nobody in their right mind would start a capital campaign. Most people in their right mind wouldn't have started a $3 million project with a church our size in the first place. None of the formulas say that our church could pull that off. And then two weeks ago, our church pledged and gave $2.8 million dollars. It really, it really is what Paul wrote about the Macedonians in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And again, there was this moment where Josh and I were texting with each other about, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad for you that you don't know as intimately the details of what is going on in our church to make that so miraculous. And again, we were like those who dreamed. Are you for real? I had gone into our pledge and campaign weekend beginning to think about all the meetings we were going to need to call to get all the groups together to talk about how are we going to take the next step forward in light of maybe not having reached our goal. And like it says in Psalm 126 verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. That's kind of like the understatement. Joy, glad. As I've prayed through this psalm this week, those are two very real times that I've remembered when God restored our fortunes. And there was, even in my mem- remembering of them, joy was welling up inside of me. And I, I hope that you will pray through this psalm and I hope that you will do the same, that you will force yourself to tell the stories back to yourself, back to God of the particular moments and the particular times where God has restored your fortunes. And if you do, be sure to bring to your mind the greatest restoration of all. When Jesus was crucified, taking on all of the evil and all of the death for you, drawing it into himself until it killed him, and then in a thing that nobody saw coming, was raised from the dead, got to the other side of death, defeated it for you. Be sure you remember that. My my family has this really wonderful tradition, I think. My children aren't yet convinced it's wonderful, but they will one day. On each kid's birthday, we have a birthday meal, and then Janelle and I tell the story of their birth. 
Because I want them to know how much we love them. Every year, they're like, quit it. We heard it before. No, sit there. Shut up. This is your birthday. You're going to like it. I mean, you do that kind of thing around Thanksgiving, right? You, you, in a normal Thanksgiving, you get together with your family, and Uncle Bob tells the same story he's always told, eating the same green bean casserole that Aunt Sue has always made, right? This, this, you need to do this with the reversal of fortune, the restoration God has done in your life. You need to tell these stories like Grandpa tells stories from World War II or great-grandma from the Depression or whatever your generations do. You need to figure out how to do this. And you can do this by journaling when God does a great thing so that you capture it and remember it. You can write a song. You can write a prayer. When I came out of the hospital, Janelle and I commissioned one of the artists of our church, Kim Hewavita, to paint Psalm 121 because it was the key psalm that was with us in the darkness. You've got to find a way to memorialize God's restorations of your fortunes so that as the years go by, you can actually pray Psalm 126 so that when you're praying it, you can remember those details. And in remembering those details, you can enter again into the dream-like joy of God's restoration. And, and then notice what happens when you do that. Inevitably, this happens. And it happened to me all week long. When you do that, it naturally leads to verse 4. It naturally leads you to crying out to God what you did, I need you to do it again. That's verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. God, that was great. But life is hard. And I need you again. All week I've had both this remarkable joy as I've remembered God's restoration and I've celebrated his kindness and faithfulness and his powerful work. And all week as I'm doing that, there wells up right alongside the joy a cry, a longing for God to do it again. There is so much in my family and in my life that I need God to do. Life can be so difficult. Work, family can be so complicated. And it's the complexities and the difficulty of life in this good but fallen and being redeemed world that creates the urgent need to cry out to God for his help, for restoration, to do for us here and now in our lives what he has done before. And what, he, and what he did so utterly and finally in the cross and in the resurrection. So how about you? What's difficult in your life? What's complicated in your life? God clearly has the power to restore our fortunes, to heal our families, to deliver us from suffering, to lead us through the complexity. He clearly has the power. He's done it in the past. And so we bring our deepest needs before God and we offer up to him our sorrows, our confusions, and we let our hearts and our minds cry out for help in the powerful love and presence of the only God there is. And so when I read and pray this psalm and when I get to verse 4, I stop and I draw into me the pain and the suffering 
that's still going on in my life. And I stop and I ask God point blank, in detail, to rescue me and to rescue my family. And I cry out to him about the suffering. And many of you know, you know my recovery from the coronavirus. It's like a roller coaster right now. I have these dementia-like symptoms. There are these nights where Janelle and I have talked about, if this doesn't ever change, I can't keep doing my vocation. It's, it can be quite scary. This past Friday afternoon, I was meeting with my therapist. I have these weekly sessions, and we were beginning to go through the trauma of the last 10 months of my life, and I lost it. And I felt like I was about a few inches away from having an utter breakdown. I started to hyperventilate. We were having to do it Zoom. He was asking me, is there anybody in the building right now? I'm not telling you this to alarm you. I'm just saying I experience these great restorations, but life is difficult. And you don't get to live in the dreamlike state forever. Not the side of heaven. That's just the hors d'oeuvres. That's the foreshadowing. And that's what it's for, is to give you a glimpse what it will be like forever and always in all places for all time. And so life is difficult. And I'm seeing medical doctors and medical health professionals. And I'm praying and I'm asking God to restore my fortunes again. And it's so important, though, that we don't stop at verse 4. And that's... That's where kind of a, a childlike, in a negative way, praying stops. You start rejoicing in the past. Suddenly, you remember the pain of the present. You beg God to help you. And if you would learn from the Psalms, you take one more step. And this is the last phase of the praying, the last two verses. After celebrating God's powerful restoration in the past and asking God to help us now, as he has in the past, then in these last two verses, we profess our trust in God that he will help us again. He will restore our fortunes in the future. That's where the last two verses are. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Bring, do, do you hear the psalmist here? Went from celebrating the past to saying, but right now it's, I need you, God, to moving towards saying, God, you're going to do it again. You're, you are going to restore me again. And to be honest, this has been so good for me this week because this week, if I hadn't had this psalm, I would have stopped in my suffering, in my begging of God to help me now. And I didn't, I couldn't, this week, I haven't, I've been, had such a hard time seeing my way out of it. But this psalm has taken me by the hand this week. And it's led me to, it's taught me to trust in God. It's forced my hand to do it. Over and over as I've returned to this prayer and made it my own, God has been saying to me, trust me. You will reap. Again, with shouts of joy. I've loved this metaphor of sowing in tears. 
Because I look back on the suffering in my own life, it's been helpful to see that bearing the seed of God's kingdom is painful. It's a suffering. To explain, think about our gospel reading where Jesus makes a fresh take on this metaphor, right? He gets this metaphor of the seed and he suddenly says, okay, here's one way it works for those of us who, who, who are in, in God's kingdom. The seed is your work for the kingdom. And you're going to sow it. And we know Right, We know that for Jesus, sowing the seed cost him his life. And this week I've been remembering that. That so much of our suffering is in our families and in our vocations. So much of our suffering is in those places. And it's in those two places that we're sowing for God and his kingdom. Whatever your job is, teaching, finance, entrepreneur, mental health work, being an artist, being a grandparent in, 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 the, in the medical world, whatever your job is, your job is the way God has called you to do something special for him and his world. Your work is God's calling on your life to do something with him and for him and his world. It is your sowing the seed of the kingdom. And that is hard. And, and it's filled with tears. Whether, whether you're trying to paint or sing something beautiful and true or build a business that gives people legitimate work and generates wealth, when we do these things, whether it's sowing into our family or sowing into our work again and again, when we try to do something that is good and true and beautiful and helpful, we meet frustration and resistance. When I look at my own career, in my own job, my own work as a pastor, in my work as a father, I've experienced what so many of you experienced and what we're going to keep experiencing. I've sensed God calling me to do something special for him. That, that's what my vocation is. That's what yours is. All of us, we have this, but watch out. Again and again, we sow in tears. There are the hot tears of frustration. As the plans you made are ruined by someone else's stupidity or malevolence. There are the tears of sorrow. As some tragedy strikes, some difficult relationship takes a turn for the worse, some unexpected problem arises just as you needed all of your concentration for a tricky piece of work. There are the tears of shame. When like Peter on that Thursday night, we let our Lord down and wonder if there will ever be any way back. All of these tears I've experienced in my vocation and in my family life. And when I get to this part of the prayer, part of what I've begun to see and to think about is that the work of sowing the kingdom costs Jesus' life. We sow in tears. And when we Join in God, with God in working for him and his kingdom in our jobs and in our families. We share in his pain and struggle. And so again and again, the psalm has been there for me to cling to. 
Again and again, it has proved true that tears do not always turn to shouts of joy when we want them to or the way we want them to. But those who go out bearing the seed for sowing will surely come reaping with joy. And this is where the psalm leads us. It leads us from memory to hope. And notice what we're learning about hope when we practice Psalm 126, when we actually pray it. We learn one of the most reassuring messages in the Bible. It's that the existence of hope does not depend on us. It does not rely on our virtue or our skill at sowing the seed or our perfect holiness. Hope is a delivery from elsewhere. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was killed by the Nazis for sowing the seed of God's kingdom in Germany. He wrote his letter to his fiancée from, from prison as he was awaiting his execution. And in it, he starts talking about this kind of praying and this kind of hoping. And he talks about how Advent is the best thing for us right now. In the letter, Bonhoeffer compared this season of life that we're going through, that he was going through, he compares it to the season of Advent, and he said, Advent is like a prison cell. You wait, and you hope, and you do various unessential things, completely dependent on the fact that the door can only be opened from outside. To pray Psalm 126 is to have that kind of hope. And as you, if you would do that, if you would learn to pray the Psalms, to really pour your heart into them, and to put your mind and your imagination into it, part of what it will do is it will help you and me to become receptive to the good news when it does arrive. Christian hope, the kind of hope here at the end of Psalm 126, it does not come from ourselves. And it doesn't come as a result of battle. It, it, it comes like a seed planted in the ground, like the sun rising in defiance of the night, like a child growing within his mother. When we get here to the end of Psalm 126, we are not the heroes of the story. We are not the rescuers. We are not the ones who sort it all out and fix it. It's not our strength and our character and our virtue that makes it happen. No, our contrary contribution is to sow the seeds of God's kingdom in our families, in our work, in our city, and to be watchful and open. And as we move toward Christmas, we're reminded that our hope will arrive in humility. God is with us. Jesus is with us. And that's everything. Let's pray.